you want to be the top HubSpot partner, you need mm -hmm. to be only doing HubSpot. Partners are the best go-to-market motion of any app. You're going in, let's solve for the people who are feeling the most pain that are selling software today. Hey Matt, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. I am, am super excited to be here. Yes, Sam's I knew you were going to actually say that for sure. So every entrepreneur has some interesting story of how they become, you know, overcome obstacles to become an entrepreneur. I was looking at your resume, your LinkedIn profile. You have had very successful, you know, corporate world positions. You also have founded several companies. But most interestingly, what I noticed was you were trained at West Point and you went to work for Army almost six years. I've had a lot of successful accomplishment there. So I'm just curious, tell us a little bit about how the Army life has prepared you to this entrepreneurial journey that you're on right now. The Army life, yeah. I was in the military about six and a half years as a military intelligence officer deployed in Kuwait during ISIL or ISIL when they were coming into Iraq. And then also was the Russian deterrence force in Europe and they didn't, Russia did not invade Ukraine while I was there. So what do you learn like as an entrepreneur in the army? I'm going to say, I guess give you three things that my, it was extremely difficult to transition out of the military and go into SAS. So as much as they're said, and so you look at the HubSpot veterans community, it's non-existent. There's nobody, almost nobody. Salesforce actually does a tremendous job. They have something called vet force where they allow people, but it's really hard to transition. Just point number one, I found it incredibly difficult to go into tech. And the only reason I was able to get a job in tech, which was actually in a telecom company, was because the president of that company used to be in the Navy in Australia. Hmm. And he said, he said, I'll take a chance. And he hired me as his chief of staff, which was very fortunate. And his name's Stephen Bai. I'm forever grateful for him. But number two, he's like, what does it actually prepare is the army does an exceptional job of teaching people discipline and which I think is just required for any role. And if some of the follow-up questions probably have that, and that's hard to go into that, mm -hmm. like what that means, but it means you get really good at doing routine, boring functions. And you get really good at thinking about how to get other people to do boring routine functions mm -hmm. and smile. And so you think about what RevOps does or what, like what it requires to be an SDR, what it requires to do sales. Many times you're doing boring routine things and you have to get exceptional after your craft and it teaches you the discipline necessary for that. So it's like, as a, as a point. And the third is I was in military intelligence, which is separate. Everybody has like, you have your infantry and shooting weapons really well and you know, converging on the enemy at a specific point. You have armor, which is driving tanks. You have signal, which is all about communications on the battlefield. I did military intelligence. I was specifically an all source military intelligence. And that specific function is our job was to take lots of data to know how to collect data. So we had SIGINT, GEOINT, HUMINT, all these different ints. So you had like, you know, spatial signal, human people giving information, looking at maps. You take that and you had to collect it and then synthesize that and then give a recommendation or on what is the most likely course of action? What is the most dangerous course of action? And what is a additional third of what's going to happen? So you get really, it forces you to synthesize and then give recommendations. And when I think about what RevOps does and specifically like the ability to communicate, here's all this data and here's what the data is telling you to do next. It translates very well, specifically into revenue. What I became, what I like fell into is like the CRM orchestration and understanding data and being able to know what to focus on, when to focus on and how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot that's there. Actually, some of the things that you just mentioned, if you read any books on personal development, like James Clear's book on 
know, atomic habits or any of those, they always talk about just the, the sheer discipline that actually gets people to achieve success in life, right? Like you can, you can have all the motivation, but motivation is short-lived. But if you don't have the, the regimen to just keep doing what's required every day, right? Whether it be workout or reading or learning a new skill, like it just does take discipline. And I think that's so true. And anytime I, I, we've oftentimes when we're trying to hire talent, we look for people who actually been in military or been an athlete sometime in, in their career, whether in high school or college or somewhere, right? Because they all come with that skill, which is just the ability to just keep doing routine things that are not enjoyable, but they will do it with, the, with a smile on their face. Make them excellent uh, resource for your company, for sure. Yeah. Endureth pain. So can you endure pain for little or no gain? for a long amount of time that is a lot of the military most certainly yeah so obviously you got into technology but then you went down you worked at a couple of companies in the technology space but then you went down to start a service-based business which is rev partners and it successfully grew to an elite partner status in less less than three years from what i'm able to gather so can you tell us a little bit about that journey of uh, starting a service company growing so rapidly and what was it like starting a company like that and going through that fast growth pace so in, in 2020, I met mm -hmm. a guy named Brendan Tolson, who is the mm -hmm. CEO of our partners. And he met him at a wedding. Um, I had just taken a, or maybe it was 2019 we met. I had just taken a head of business operations and marketing role at a company. And he had just, and he was a CRO of a company. And he'd already made decisions. And I was like, we we're talking about CRM. Hey, why did he chose Salesforce? Why is he doing Salesforce? What platforms is he doing for marketing attributes? And just like ask, we just hit it off. And asking all those, like really technical, he was a technical CRO, I think through data. 2020 came around, he got fired from that. Um, in my company, there was a mass layoff of everybody that came, about half the company got fired. I was the only person that didn't get fired that mm -hmm. had gotten hired within this last year. And so I'd gone to him and it was like, nothing about me. I was like, I was trying to like, why didn't I get fired? And the th reason we didn't get fired was because I ran the CRM. And I was the person keeping the sales reps. I had the data. I could run the reports. It was all like you couldn't get. I was integral to the business. And he had that same experience with the CRO. He had come from SaaS startups and he had ran an entire partner market share. We came as we were just thinking is there's something special, not about me, that's transcendent in the marketplace today. And it's this idea of revenue operations. And we didn't have a name for it yet. It wasn't even like termed yet, but it's the idea of how you put these pieces together and be a technical, tactical individual that could also talk strategic and be able to give a path so people could like go from point A to point B or point C. And that's what led us to like think about Rep Partners. So we moonlighted, I mean, we, we had it for a bit. Nobody had HubSpot. In fact, I hated HubSpot. If someone came to HubSpot, I would laugh. I mean, you look at my background. I'm in a Hubvolution. Like, it's an orange wave now. And so we, we just, from the beginning, we're like, hey, I, I've seen these partner ecosystems, and he had been in partner, too. Like, we have to go really deep. We have to pick who we're going to go deep in, too. I didn't want to do Salesforce, even though I love Salesforce. Like, it's inundated. It's already. So, like, who are we picking? How are we doing this? We'll do something different. So we did Active Campaign, Pipe Drive. Mixmax, you just name it. We tried it and we even had partners on it. And then I didn't even think about HubSpot. It's like it's a marketing automation platform built for marketers. Like I'm not going to look at this thing. One of our clients had HubSpot and I was actively moving them off to active campaign. That's crazy. They were doing something, which is also a marketing automation platform. <laughs> and I used HubSpot for about three weeks or a month. I was like, this has everything I want in it built the way I would like it. This is the most intuitive, easy to you program I've ever seen. Nobody knows it's actually a CRM. In fact, I know people don't know about it because I didn't know about it. And I made fun of it actively with them. 
there's an arbitrage opportunity. We need to switch everything we're doing. Let's go all in. And so within a month, we went from not having like a, and then we went and signed the partner agreement. And so since 20 January, 2021, we like put everything in. We, we, and then we quit our job. We quit our jobs all in and HubSpot. And then like February, 2021 is really when we quit our jobs. 12 months later, we were an elite partner of HubSpot. And so the fastest steering. So there's a whole journey there on how you did that. We mm -hmm. like took, we, we actually raised money because we had families to support and we didn't want to do it. So we, we ran the company like a SaaS company. And so how we productized, how we serve, how we sold. And there's a whole journey in there, but that's how we, we thought about it. So there's the initial story. I'll stop for a second and let you yeah. ask some questions. So, yeah, tell me. I'm curious to learn. So obviously you saw this opportunity and you feel like, hey, the HubSpot, even though by then, I think in 2022, HubSpot was well over a billion dollars in sales already. So it's not 20, a- twenty. We, we started 2020. It was like, I hadn't yet hit a billion. Yeah. Okay. They haven't hit the billion. Yeah. So, but they were still a pretty, you know, sizable op company. They were already doing inbound. I know in 2020, 2021, they didn't have like the in-person, I think inbound, but they were already having a pretty massive influence in the marketplace. People started to hear the name. It's not like a brand new brand. So you saw this software that you, you saw, Hey, if we can get specialized in it, we can be a, a solution partner, implementation partner, and get really good at it and be one of the go-to partner. But what was some of the secret sauce that went into, you know, obviously raising money is one aspect of it, to actually get the customers to to pay you so that you can grow at a fast pace. Because the requirement for becoming an elite status isn't just becoming a partner, right? You have to sell and service a vast amount of uh, managed revenue in on the HubSpot platform to even do that. So how did you get that many customers onboarded and serviced in under 12 months. I talked to Brendan the other day as a catch up and I asked him that question. I look, we look back and there is a part of this is I have no freaking clue how we did that. Like you look mm -hmm. back and you're like, that is, you have experience, like you have that. We like, I don't even remember that part of my life in some aspects. Mm -hmm. So if you're like from a, uh, from a framework point of view and how we approach all problems. So number one is we said, Hey, we are not going to bootstrap this. We want to, we need to move faster. There's like a time horizon on this and we want to be fast. So he's like bootstrapping is not something we, we we're like, we want to treat this as much as software as possible. And so mm -hmm. one of the things in service and you'll have lots of recommendations. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying we didn't do it this way is we in service. There's, I build it and there's this constant tension, demand versus supply. And if you create too much demand, then you, you have to supply it and then you have to stop demand. And it's just constantly like spurt, stop, spurt, stop, spurt, spot. And then you lose the person, they go somewhere else and you're just constantly like restarting. And so we, we were like, Hey, we're going to, let's treat this like a set. Let's, let's actually, our first hire, two hires were six figure, hundred thousand salary, hundred thousand dollar salary people come in. And we only do that because we raised money. Right. But we also, we had a burn rate, like we were not profitable mm -hmm. and we're like, okay, we're going to build. And so we did it like, and we had, here's our numbers. Here's what we have to hit. Here's what we have to bring in. And uh, started. So just to a point, like we, we treated it as if I would got a, was getting money. We're going to hit on a goal and execute. That's number one, just a point. Two is from day one, we crystallized or started forming because it would change over time, a methodology about how to create data structures in a way that will reveal more information. So it's like, Hey, and then we start coining it. We were taking winning by design. We do the bow tie method and we figured out that problem set inside HubSpot and where we can guarantee you can answer this question this way if you use us. And then we'll lead you through and we had boxes, like all these different playbooks. So we started to like, we very quickly became modular products that we could give to our strategists over time that you can begin executing. And number three is we said we will do no projects and no SOWs. 
So the very beginning, and it was a, hey, we're doing, everything's organized in pods. Everyone, is, we're going to have a very high touch, low volume model. And everyone we have is going to, we're going to run in sprints and we're going to treat this, everybody's CRM like it is a product itself. So we're centrally reselling product managers for companies that need project managers for their CRM. So I say a framework, we would like, hey, this is your problem set. You're not understanding customer. Your problem set is this. Here's your problems that you actually have. And here's the way you solve it. And I think that was unique. That point, like no one was talking about your CRM as a product. No one was talking about delivering it like a product. And then last fourth, we gave everything we ever did away for free. And it was part of super, like I did masses amount of, I like did training on, here's everything we do. Here's how we do it. Here's how we think about it. And we held nothing back. I, I know that's not specific and get specific, but as you take those is we didn't bootstrap. We had a methodology. We hired senior people at the beginning, which allowed us to move fast to crystallize. Number four, mm -hmm. we didn't keep anything proprietary. Makes sense. So obviously there's a lot of nuggets in there that I'll love to dig up. So you've mentioned about the methodology, which I think is something that you encourage others to do, especially with the superb product, which I want to get into in a little bit, like how service-based businesses need to start thinking in terms of methodology and frameworks. And I, can you elaborate a little bit on why that's important, especially for a service company? I'm sure it's for differentiation purposes. What other value does methodology and frameworks within an organization provide for a service-based company? In any company that's focusing on a specific product. So if you go in the IT managed service, there are these companies like there's Veeam and Dell and Cisco and Red Hat. There's all these vendors that are vying for your attention. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'd seen that in the past and I was just like, Hey, the best ones don't go an inch deep with everybody. They go, they only pick one and they get really good with one. I ran partner programs and said, I really mm -hmm. enjoy partners that just do this. Part of it is if you're a partner, you just need to go really, really deep with one specific piece of technology. Bare minimum. If you want to be the top HubSpot partner, you need mm -hmm. to be only doing HubSpot. And if you're not, you're never going to be a top HubSpot partner. It's scary. Mm -hmm. It starts saying no to things. So like as a base candidate to even start to differentiate, you must only do HubSpot. The second layer is once I have chosen HubSpot, the next question you must answer is what will I be known for? I think this is one thing that Rev Partners did a good job of. We got known for something and we were like, we're only going to be known for this one thing. And so you can just specialize and you need to get really good. So examples of things you could do. I am the HubSpot partner that does NetSuite, anything that has NetSuite the best. I am the HubSpot partner that does N4 the best, right? So you can be specific with a, a tool. I'm the partner, Blueflog does this, that does Zoom Info the best. The other is to be a function specific. I am the partner that does mergers and acquisitions the best. There's over and over, you pick something that you have in your past and you do it, function specific. That's also to industries. You have to be specific enough so that you can be known for something. And if you think, and you're like, oh, I do this and this and this, like, you have to start saying, I do this. But if you really are in my sweet spot, it's X. And if you can't answer that, you just have to stop and commit. Even if you're wrong, commit. We were wrong. We actually picked the stuff we didn't even do. We were wrong and it's easy to change and shift. Understood. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was like, you know, especially when you're starting a service business, you have this feast or famine mentality where if you have a feast and you don't have enough resources to do the work, so then you slow down your prospecting and hunting and marketing efforts, then you, you end up in a famine and now you're struggling to pay your bills. So you have that struggle, but you ended up having to raise capital and then you also had a very fast growth getting to the elite status. So what were some of the 
uh, strategic things that you've done to get you to have consistent flow of new business that coming to you looking for your help so you didn't have to to go through that up and down ebbs and flow yeah there are three things number one is you're known for a very specific problem you solve in the ecosystem mm-hmm. and everybody knows you for that one thing that sounds easy but that is a you just pick one thing and you produce and i literally one of our first topics like matt do we want quality or quantity of content and I was like, absolutely quantity. Talk about James Clear. He has a thing in his book. It talks about like how many photos you take versus taking the perfect. Anybody hear this? Never focus on quality. Always focus on quantity. Your bad quality becomes someone else's good quality. And you're producing faster. Focus on the content distribution. So we went all in on being known for one thing. And literally on my metric, verbatim, year one, is be known for... Salesforce to HubSpot migrations as the ringleader of the alternative and the like contrarian voice against Salesforce to attack it. And we are going to create a butt ton of content, but ton. Like how much is that? More than anything you can ever think of, but ton. Number one. Number two, if we will never say we do not have capacity for a deal. If we say we do Salesforce to HubSpot and a sales and a HubSpot person comes to us and they're often, I know you are busy. Do you have capacity? We'd be like, it was one of our lines. RP will always have capacity. Stop asking me that. The question is, do you want to win a deal? Not do we have capacity. Mm-hmm. So it's like training those those reps to understand. That's an immense amount of operational rigor you have to do to be able to answer that question that way. Number three is we spent a lot of time on training and getting onboarding. So you think about like, we're always going to have capacity. To always have capacity, we must recruit and train better than anyone else. And we must be known for a specific thing. And that was the three ways. Now, if, if RP puts a post, they get 150 applications same day for mm. like strategists. They never, it's never about getting people. Now it's all about training and cycling them through. So obviously you've done a lot of things right to, to have that fast growth. I'm sure there's been some mistakes made along the way. What were some of the, the notable mistakes uh, that you would say you made? And, and if you had to do it all over again, what would you avoid? I would use super. That's my mm-hmm. noticeable mistake. So I built this when Super didn't exist. So a lot of all the mistakes that I've made are built into a product to, uh, to help that. Uh, mistake number one, not doing a minimum of three. We have a like very specific now we follow who, but not mm-hmm. interviewing, like being, I don't look at anybody's resume anymore. I don't care about mm-hmm. the resume. My mistake is I would look at someone's resume, be impressed by it. And we would have a practicum to do and I would have their resume affect how I saw their actual real-time results. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't spend enough time on the interview. So we now, like you have a minimum of higher, slow, mm-hmm. move fast, higher, slow, move fast. That's number one. Number two is I didn't fire fast enough. Mm-hmm. That sounds weird. Uh, but like there's this, if there is a, in a service organization, especially when you're growing 10, like when you have one tenth or one twentieth of your entire culture, and someone's not pulling their weight, especially in service when you're selling people in many ways, it, it is like a catastrophe waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. And so there, we got much better at what does it look like to hire slow, fire fast. Now it sounds evil, but it's not. Like it's like, hey, if this is not the right place for you, we can help you find the right place that you want to be. That's why we're hire really slow, provide an immense amount of training, fire very quickly. Three is moving out of founder-led anything is extremely difficult. And I would do it differently than the way we did. 
And so mm-hmm. moving away from founder-led marketing and or founder-led sales, and I was kind of doing both of those for the function of RP, where I moved away and stopped because we and moved and said, hey, I'm going to stop. We're going to stop. I'm going to do a hard cut. There's a whole, like, that is the most difficult transition in your company's history. And to do it well, it requires letting the company fail sometimes in many, in many mm-hmm. aspects because people have to learn from failure. And it, I would let people fail. The honest, what ended up happening, because I, I got Sparta kicked out of RP, that's when founder-led transition actually occurred mm-hmm. because I was unwilling to let something go because it couldn't fail. So those are three big uh, mm-hmm. in terms of transition. Higher, and I know it says like, it's nothing about RP. It's nothing about like delivery. It's actually hire slow, train really good, fire fast. And mm-hmm. when you do the founder-led transition, let people fail. Truly delegate authority to them. So when you talked about training, you've actually mentioned a little bit about investing a lot of time, almost three months into building your frameworks and being able to train people on those frameworks so you can quickly ramp up a strategist and get them up and running. So were those frameworks kind of built on the HubSpot's academy of content or those were things that you were just researching and building to make the rev partners be very unique in the marketplace? Yeah, I put two. So well, I'm going to take the academy piece and then I'll mm-hmm. take the rev ops, like training on frameworks. So mm-hmm. we actually had a minimum where in your first 90 days or your first 30 days, you must get 10 certifications and you must retain 10 certifications. And that was probably for the first two years of the company. We mm-hmm. had a very hard, like everybody in the company, if you didn't make that, you it was part of like your higher fire criteria. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have 10, you didn't get paid bonus. That's how we use the academy. And we had people like if you were technique, like different roles had different things they need to learn. Even, but even HR, if you came in in HR, you came in finance, 10 certifications and you had to maintain it. So they so, knew how to even look for candidates because they knew the people that probably are coming with some experience and expertise. Yeah, you, it just yeah. allows everyone to, because we, if you're going live, to live and breathe. So we had most certifications per employee in the entire ecosystem. And I probably still, mm-hmm. like that would be RP. I don't know if, I, just, I don't know anymore, but it was that mm-hmm. a thing. They had almost 750 and there's like 30 people. <laughs> yeah. Like there is at one point, like almost, yeah, I think they had the second most in the whole ecosystem. Um, out can be like some of these, they have 120 people. Number two is frameworks. Like, so this is the thing. If you don't have a framework and you don't have a point of view and you don't have a mindset, how can you train somebody? You can't. And that's part of like, that is part of this transition of being a well-run service company. You're currently making the transition thinking about like, I know you are doing it. It's like, and you probably felt this. It's really hard to train somebody on how to do a service implementation if there's not a methodology they can follow because you can't, like there's no standardized way of thinking through a problem set. And so you end up relying on people's experience and it's built over time. And so if you want, how do you take somebody out of college How do you take somebody that's never been using HubSpot, they come from Salesforce, and how do you turn them into a RevOps ninja, right? Or has Mm -hmm. an experience that, how do you take, how do you transcend that experience? Um, That is, you can't do it if you don't have playbooks. You can't do it. So it took us time, and that's why we overhire. I use the word, we would actually hire people, uh, expensive resources. We didn't ever worry it. We never prioritized profit. We always prioritize building for like, we rent like SaaS. Like there's other thing, like we hire really expensive people to compensate for us not having training until we could. Once we had some margin, we actually created an entire product department that does nothing besides create playbooks that people to mm-hmm. train and to use for implementation. That's like, when you think about super, that was, that's really like, oh, this is the problem mm-hmm. inside service companies that you can solve. 
how do you help people prioritize faster so they can train faster or they can afford more expensive resources? Yeah, so you can have more capacity, so you can like, so you can do more, like it starts, you see all these problems start, they actually all come together. That is the secret, that's the thing we need to solve. Yeah, so obviously the productize is a concept if you just search on YouTube, you find so many videos talking about how everybody needs to be offering more of a productized offering. So can you explain a little bit about how you perceive productized? Uh, it's not just ABC version of a product, right? Like, oh, you get three blogs and two eBooks and whatever else. That's not how you're envisioning productized. Can you talk a little bit about what you, uh, how you define productized and how you yeah, most uh, of a service company implement it? Yeah, service companies will use the word retainer. I refuse to use the word retainer. Everything was a product. And then the way I see service companies productizing is I don't believe in hours as a concept because because hours don't represent value. value. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I think represents value is when you think about a product team actually creating a product. So when I think about any you know rev, and I think I'd put marketing ops, I'd put anything like landing pages, blog pages. We built everything on a sprint point system, or you call it story point system, and built it into pods. And then we built everything based on how, like how much does something take us to do? And then we give recommendations on what you should do based on your strategy. And so there was never, like, we give you this many, like that doesn't matter. You may not need that. No, like we do, you know, from, from A to Z, we can cover the entire funnel. I'm going to come in and tell you where your funnel is broken. And then we're going to give you recommendations on what you should and shouldn't do. Of course, you're going to influence that. But like I own the product. And then you can help me as a part of the customers, like help me execute. And so as you build more and more of your CRM, you now need maintenance. So we have a maintenance program and that takes up some of these story points. And so that's how we built it. And it starts to go into um, re, like RevOps as a service was like probably, I think we the first, that RevOps are the first to go like RevOps as a service that has come through. And that's how you think about product. And so that then allows you to do capacity planning. That then allows you to do predictions. That allows you to do, there's all these other supply and demand meetings you can start having internally. Makes sense. Because so yeah, how many sprint points are coming, right? Understood. So obviously you made a shift from service-based business to to go over to build a SaaS company. Can you tell us a little bit about where did the idea for Superd come from and what was kind of the genesis of all of that? Rep Partners and Brent and I, when we were building Rep Partners, we actually, uh, service companies are beautiful because they are high cash. They quickly can become profitable and they are really hard to get rid of once they're made, right? They're pretty, what's the word? Uh, there's durability to a service company, uh, right? It just takes long, uh, longer. We had worked, if you send, he came from the at, uh, Atlassian um, ecosystem where he was doing partnerships. I've also seen, I've seen a bit in the Salesforce ecosystem um, and others. And it's this, and there's other like KMS, there's, there's a lot of these companies where they'll build a service company and, it, and then that will allow them to understand the problem sets that are greatest in the ecosystem. Uh, that then they can start creating apps because apps have a high, high margin, but they're very difficult to sell often. So the way it's traditionally done. And so we, we always came in, Hey, we're going to build, we would talk when we get product updates. So I say, we're going to be your most strategic service company. And then we don't know what it is, but we're going to, we will build your most strategic app. I don't know what it is, but like when it happens, Matt will go build the most strategic app you have. Then we'll transform your partner ecosystem. We don't know what it is, but like, mm -hmm. we're here to do that. People thought we were crazy. You know, we told them we'll be your fastest tearing to elite. And they looked at us like, we, yeah, you're, you're completely delusional. And uh, so that was always our plan. And so once we got to the point of, hey, here's a problem set. And we got the service company large enough. And it was like at 50 people at that point. I think it's now 70, 75, 80-ish. 
where I could step away. You had to have like a founder could step away. Uh, and then, and then we was like, you know what, like really what the ecosystem needs now is where HubSpot's actually positioned. It's like HubSpot's about to go up market. There's not enough partners, not like we need people to switch over from Salesforce to HubSpot. They like, they need to be able to scale on it. The partners themselves that we have in here need to be able to start productizing. We need industry specification because that's where HubSpot's going. We need function specification because we're about to get more complicated enterprise deals. And you need some, somebody to be like, there's, there's some manufacturing ERP that me and you have no clue what it is. There's insurance ERPs. There's like, you need it. You need it to go up market. HubSpot needs it. What is the turbo jet fuel for HubSpot? And that's where Supered was like, okay, there's all these things we could do. Mm-hmm. We could become an app portfolio company like Happily does, right? Where you just build a few, like, use like uh, I'd call them utility apps that help you do a few things. And those often really just become legion vehicles. I mean, to, mm-hmm. to, to, for your, for your service company. And we didn't want that. We wanted a, like, we want a platform that can scale independently solving a hundred million dollar problem. And so, um, but you can't start from scratch. Like you need funding, you need a bit. So like that's, and we had, now we had a service company that we could get initial cash from along with initial rounds from, from partners and run it like a SaaS company from day one. And so that's mm-hmm. where Supered was birthed from. Mm-hmm. It's always is- been, the, it's like a natural extension of democratizing revenue operations inside the HubSpot ecosystem. Very good definition. So what are some unique challenges that you're facing in terms of building the SaaS company? Obviously, like you said, right? Selling the product is one big problem and obviously building a, you know, building a product. First and foremost, like you said, identifying there's really a problem to be solved and then building a product around it. And now you go sell it. And like you said, you've, you raised capital to grow your service company. And I'm assuming you've done the same with this uh, SaaS company. What are some of the other um, challenges that you're running into in this early stage? Yeah, like starting a SaaS, there's all these problem sets for a stat. Like when we helped, I mean, I helped I create all these frameworks to help people think about these things. Mm-hmm. You need to go from not just product market fit, but um, you need product market fit. You need go to market fit. Then you have to go, there's like all these different revenue grounds you need to go to, right? Mm-hmm. Traditionally, the hardest part is to create an app, get know if someone's going to use it. Here's what's beautiful again about creating, like I am the user. I'm not only am the, the end user, I don't need requirements. I don't need people. Like I can tell and I could get us really far before we mm-hmm. even put it in front of anybody. And I could get us far enough where I know so, like I, someone would buy this right now. And so we went to launch. Well, it was our second customer. I did one customer and bought it day one. So there's this product market fit that we never had to go through. Now I'll tell you like, what's different between a service and a app is there's a, when you're selling a service, you're selling a bit of yourself. That's why I found out like sales and growth is so hard to get up, get up because you're almost selling yourself. It's so, it's much easier to sell. When you're selling an app, you're actually selling a functionality and they don't care how passionate you are about it. Does it do like, does it copy this and does it do that? Will it do this thing? Does it do that? And there's a sufficiency you has to get past. And that's the most, like knowing when to stop building features and how to prioritize those features has probably been the most difficult thing in transition. And it was really easy to build a million dollar, I say the word easy here and like this is like, it was easy to build a million dollar service company. It is really hard to get people to buy an app for the first like 100K ARR, like mm-hmm. incredibly difficult compared. Yeah. So obviously you're, you're trying to sell to the end customer and also sell through the partner model. So why did you decide that you do need to follow that map path? Is that kind of what you've seen the playbook used by 
all the major SaaS players and even the SaaS companies that you've kind of worked to go at. partner. Yeah, partner plus even selling to the end customer as well. It's kind of just a perfect. It's a perfect storm for mm-hmm. for HubSpot. Is I believe very strongly. I I um, I think partners are the best go to market motion of any app, and you can do that. Like in you know, Chili Piper, Avoma, Lead Forensics. There's a host of people that want like click up Asana, Teamwork. Everybody wants you to sell their product. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants you to sell their product. Even like everyone wants you to sell their product. But nobody solves something for you. And I, the best go to markets and like the most I've seen, the most frictionless sales have been when a partner invites you in and just does it. So we did from day one. If our real end users are partners, not mm-hmm. people using HubSpot. And if we solve for partners and we get rid of all the friction and make it better for them to sell HubSpot, that is the go to market we're going. That's what we decided. It's like when you're going in, let's solve for the people who are feeling the most pain that are selling software today. Mm-hmm. And it was a perfect storm where like no one's thought about it that way before. So we're just able to move ruthlessly in that direction. And by the way, we have this other thing that makes it easier and makes it HubSpot even better. And it's very, there's a lot of synergy. So obviously we can talk a lot about business, but I do want to kind of shift to focus a little bit about you. So you've mentioned a little bit about the army background and how he would given you the discipline to just go do the, you know, the mundane stuff with the smile on your face. Um, but clearly you've also perfected productivity. I've been on the receiving end of your sales strategies and, how you follow up with videos and a lot of sequences and things like that. So can you share a little bit about some of the productivity hacks and systems you've implemented to scale your time? I wrote a LinkedIn post about this. I don't think people believe me. Number one, we are about to hit 500K AAR. We have a path, like a path we could start hitting 1 million. We are now the fastest growing platform deliberately built for HubSpot ever. It's like their first six, like it's the first thing in the platform. And we were proving out a concept for people. And it's like, Matt, how'd you do that? Matt, if you need special techs? No, I show up late to meetings. I don't even know where people come from often when I'm on a meeting with them. I've done no research about the individual. None of that stuff that you're told, it matters. Doesn't matter as much as you think. Here's what matters. Can you run a meeting? What I mean by run a meeting is you get in the call and you say, what do you want to get out of this call? What does success look like for you today? You start every meeting like that. And then at the end of the call, you better get to that. Or you tell them, we can't do that today, but we can do this. Is that sufficient for you? And you get it. And Sandler's called it upfront contract. You just, you get, that's number one. Number two, you can show up late. As long as you do that. Number two, you never end a sales call or you never end any call without the next call scheduled. Even when they say no to you. If they say, no, we don't want a next call, the deal's over mm-hmm. and it's dead. So when someone's like, ah, we just don't feel comfortable, I'd be like, received. I I'm hearing you say you don't want to use supered right now. What's keeping you from booking this meeting with me? Look them in the eyes. So you never end with the next meeting. If they don't want a meeting, that means we failed and we need to like figure out what we did wrong. Mm-hmm. And then number three, everything on that call, you better send a recap and send a loom video afterwards, even if it's the next day, but like pretty immediately. And if you do those three things, I didn't say do any research. You just say, Hey, and just be honest. Hey, I haven't looked you up. I'm late for my last demo. I don't know who you are. How'd you get here? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. What do you want to receive? What like, what do you, what do you want to achieve? You end it with the next meeting and you summarize it and then you send a recap. That's the only thing things you need. Mm-hmm. I, I really believe that everything else is the personalized style, but you have to do those three things. So what, why do you think that the follow-up recap is super important? I'm going to ask this. You've been part of this process. Mm-hmm. How did it make you feel 
when I sent a recap with everything we talked about, had a timeline made about what was going to be done and set the meeting and gave you a Loom video about what we went over and gave it to you. How did it make you feel? Well, you, it keeps the buyer accountable is how I perceived it, right? Because you're now on the hook to follow through on your side of the, <laughs> the bargain. Wow. I made yeah. a commitment. And so you get a commitment and I don't want to let the other person, like this person's put a lot of work. And if you say no, there, there's a bit of a, like, there's a psychotic, like you say no to that person. It's like when you go to Costco and they give you free food and then you feel really bad when you try to run away and you look <laughs> them in the eyes. It's like that, right? <laughs> like there's some psychology about, Hey, I've, I've captured everything you committed to this expectation here, we're going to do it. You need to assign your buyers task. And that's probably, I didn't say that as part of my recaps, but the, you assign, I assign every buyer a task to do with an mm -hmm. expectation. We're going to get, we got there and along with my self task. And I mm -hmm. showed them I've already done it. So a specific tool I use is called tech blaze. I actually don't use a uh, HubSpot's thing. And so I have a backslash and I have like 20 different templates I'm using based on the conversations I'm hearing. You start with one and I've made them so I can like, pfft, and I can quickly, so I have my exact formats with all my, I can just quickly make one. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're generally, and I just update them just a bit, create a little video, send it out. Based on what you're describing, it seems like you have, you're a Sandler sales uh, trained. So you're kind of following the Sandler methodology. I, I am not Sandler trained, although I think they're excellent uh -huh. trainers. Yeah, because some of the things you've mentioned is the upfront contract, never leave a call without an actual next step uh, committed by the buyer and all of those things are some of the Sandler methodology, which I think you, you just naturally have those skills, but... Those are what some of the Sandler techniques that salespeople. Oh, maybe so, someone in Sandler was military. I, like Possibly. this idea of like, David yeah, Sandler. you have a frame. You say, "What are we getting out of this?" We all agree to it. You finalize. You go around the horn. I write a yes. recap. Like those are just. I would say that's actually very military. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, and even just like you said, right? Like even without next step decided, right? There's a, some sort of a phrase that they use. It's okay to say no. So they basically want to take away the fear of having to reject you on your face. So they tell them like, hey, disarm them by saying, it's okay to say no. If you don't wanna have a follow-up mm. call, that's perfectly fine. So you're just letting them off the hook right there instead of you having the hope that they're gonna follow up with you and do whatever they said they're gonna do. Yeah, hope's um, a bad strategy. So there's right. no like, you're either gonna meet with me next or you are. Exactly. So yeah, obviously, obviously I have one last question here. So you're a busy man, you're a family man, you have children, you have wife, you're trying to balance the act of being a father at home and husband. And then also you're trying to build this fast growing company and you've also done the same with the service company. So you got a lot of things to balance, right? You have the product side that you have to focus on, you're selling. How on earth are you doing all of this? And what's kind of your secret in terms of balancing your, all these different responsibilities that you have? I don't work on weekends and I don't work past five. I try my darndest uh, to not work past 530 and nor do I work at night. So. Uh, there's this Rob Foreman, who's one of our advisors at Supert. Uh, you use the time you give yourself. And so part of becoming effective or extremely disciplined is if you don't allow yourself any other time, then it allows you to feel like it just allows you to do it. The next is things fall through the cracks. I mean, sometimes it takes me two days to get a recap. And what's more important? is the business or your family. So you're, when you have those hard times, you just, and you just have to give it. So I, I have part of this for me is a, I have a faith. I am a Christian. I know that like anything we're building, this is all treasure on this earth is going to go away. And so although my family, like there, there's other things you can, you can spend other places without that, I would be haunted by not being able to get things done. And so I'm able to like have my hope in something else besides a business. And so if, I know if this could all fall apart and uh, if I'm defined by that, it would break me and my family. 
when you think about how do you get so much done, I think it just seems like I get a lot of stuff done. Like I don't work past five, don't work on weekends, but during the time I'm on. And then when I'm off, we're off. Awesome, man. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for sparing your wisdom with our audience. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you. It was super fun. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.